I am Plant on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Renee Saragini-Saklikar joins me again. It's uh, not been too long since uh, she was uh, last on to discuss her new book, Brahma's Quest, but we're in person this time to continue the conversation uh, as well as reflect on other things. She's a good friend of the podcast, and it's always good just to chat. The book is a second installment in her epic fantasy in verse, The Heart of This Journey Bears All Patterns. The website for more on this book as well as the first book in the series and, and her previous books, uh, the, pardon me, the first book in her series, Brahma and the Beggar Boy, is at uh, thotjbap.com. The books are published uh, by Nightwood Editions. Please welcome back to the Plant Online program, Renee Sacklecar. Ms. Sacklecar, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for uh, coming in to do this. My pleasure. Um, these are such powerful characters in your book, and um, I can't help, after having finished the book now for a while, um, thinking of them as a reader. What is that like for you as, a, as, a, as a, the writer, the creator of all of these folks? Um, do they, I mean, how often do you think of them? How, do they speak to you even? Yeah, they definitely speak to me. I definitely carry them all around. Some more in the foreground than the background, depending on where I'm at in the creation process and which book I'm at. So right now, because I'm so invested in talking about book two, Brahma's Quest, uh, the characters that are in the foreground of book two, Sharonda, Bartholomew, Raphael, Brahma, of course, and then to a lesser degree, Grandma and the Beggar Boy, and then those marvelous hired mercenary assassins um, based on Hamlet's Rajencrantz, um, um, <laughs> the, Rosencrantz. They're all and in Gunster. one now. Yeah, yes, all... yes, and I've repurposed them to be Gujarati Norwegian. Um, so they're all floating around there, and they do talk to me, and they do come to me, and I carry them around, and I think about what next as I slowly start building out book three, yeah. loosely called right now Brahma's Discovery. That's the working title. And it's very interesting to me how they come, how they arrive. Yeah. And and Brahma is such a um, unique character. It's, it's not a kind of character that we've read uh, someone, we've read of before, you know, that we've read someone like her before. Um, in creating her, as you did, you know, it's 10 years now, I understand. Um, did you think about how she would be received by readers, say? Well, I don't know that I did. I don't know that I think about those sorts of things in the act of creation. It's so much like taking dictation from an, a source that's arriving. And that can be a little mm, mystical. But it's kind of like that. The characters appear. So Brahma came to me as a little girl. You know, she's grown over the arc of the series. She was a little girl, an orphan, not knowing her origins, not knowing she had semi-divine powers. She's playing with her toys, um, cast-off toy, a replication, a cheap replication of Bucephalus, Alexander the Great's mythic horse. Um, it's after the Battle of Kingsway. I saw a little toy plastic horse on a veranda getting off the bus, traveling um, west to east on the 41st, 41st bus around Fleming and 41st. And it was on the veranda. And who knows the way of the subconscious and the creative brain? 
as soon as I saw this tableau, ramshackle house, old veranda, uh, sinking down into the property line, getting off the bus, she was there for me. And I wrote a poem that then appeared in a little chapbook and published by Above Ground Press in Ottawa. And then the poems just led me deeper into the character. And, and um, you, you must have, I've uh, probably asked you this before and, and others have asked you, why um, tell the story in poems, say, rather than a novel even? Yeah, I think for me, because I am a poet, I've really been drawn to the epic form. I've been drawn to sagas, cycles, the large canvas wherein you can put micro and macro themes and moments. And poetry allows you to layer that in poem by poem, line by line, sometimes word by word. You can compress a lot of meaning. And um, I think, you know, if we get to it, I can I can read a poem that illustrates that. That, yeah. that is how poetry works and how I'm drawn to storytelling. Yeah, it, it, these are marvelous hate to call them scenes, but I guess that's what they are, aren't they? The little pieces of life in, in the story that we get into and live in until we get to the next one, right? Very much. And and that's the thing. I guess novelists, they just write and write and write, um, sometimes excessively. But with, with, with a poem, you're, you're limited in a way. I mean, you, you're limited by... The, the amount of space that you think this scene deserves, I suppose, right? But there's a lot of editing to get to a particular piece, right? Yeah, a lot of revision. Um, I've blended in ways that I didn't realize I was doing the things that a novelist has to do with structure, mm. with the plot, although I say that carefully because it is poetry, it is an epic poem. Mm-hmm. A lot of the poetry comes to me through sound, image, rhythm, Docu-poetics, the fragments of text, reportage, science, a lot of science that I then twist and subvert for my own magical fantasy purposes, Mm -hmm. especially that question, what if? And the poetry is usually a series of images, sounds, words, language. And then I'm thinking about the epic so that when I come to revise, I look at what I have scribbled dictated on my iPhone, and I go, oh, this might work into a 14-line sonnet. Or, especially for this book, I wonder how I can shape what I've written into a blank verse. So, you know, Milton wrote Paradise Lost in blank verse. Shakespeare wrote most of his plays in blank verse. Loosely 10 beats in a weak-strong, weak-strong rhythm. Um, And then you just write it. Dante, certainly, uh, in The Divine Comedy, with the Teresa Rima. I know this is kind of geeking out in the poetics, <laughs> but that's that's the revision process. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you've you've uh, got your book. Uh, by the way, you're, uh, for people listening to us, you, you're, you've got all these stickies in there. So you, you've, you've marked off, I guess these are things that you read when you're doing readings and appearances. Is that right? That's right. And also poems that really speak to me as I think about the series, yeah. as I um, think about characters, uh, we were just talking about characters. So um, one of my favorite poems is a comparison of Brahma and this this new character, uh, Sharonda. Mm-hmm. 
And um, I love the fact that they are so different. Um, that's one of my favorite poems. And I, and I come back to it because I want to go deeper with the characters, yeah. right? And maybe their progeny. Each book has a generation of characters. Uh-huh. And I try and help the reader with front and end material. So you always have a list of characters. You have a list of locations. You have plot summaries yeah. in the back. I never thought as a poet that I would do stuff like that. But my wonderful publisher, Nightwood Editions, and, and my structural editor, um, Silas White, really recommended it. And I'm really glad now because yeah. it helps the reader and it helps me. And if, if one picked up, say, Brahma's Quest and hadn't read the first book, they, they could easily understand what, what's happened and, and how this turns out right 100 percent, and that's very deliberate because it's poetry mm. so you'll find that even the table of contents people have told me reads like a a poem because you can dip in and out of this book each poem stands on its own i hope right. yeah. i mean every reader's different right every reader is so individual how they will access a long work that feels like a novel mm-hmm. is structured like a novel but is told as an epic poem each reader will make those choices. I've tried to think about the reader really carefully in how I've constructed the book. And, yeah, so going back to character, So, so you've I selected know. a poem. Would you mind giving me the page so that way I could read along with my copy? I would love to. So it's page 210, okay. It's entitled Sharonda and Brahma. Mm-hmm. It's in part two of the book. And it's in the whole section that's grouping poems about Sharonda called The Legend of Sharonda. And it's written in blank verse. And I'll just read the first section in the poem. Mm -hmm. Sharonda and Brahma. Their first meeting, Brahma silent, precise, quiet, controlled, hands to locks, as was told. Bravado, bravado doesn't feed mouths, Brahma said. Sharonda's fury, no match for resolve. Demigoddess to war hero, wary. Unseen wire pulling them close, apart. Adversity adept, both of them fierce. Sharonda fire and lightning. Rattling guns, sharp sword jabs. Brahma, smooth, still, intent, minute by minute. Careful with each task, the tougher the moment, the more silent. Sharonda, flashing silver, Brahma, gold, molten, steadfast, nimble, her skills sustained. Sharonda, mistress of the grand entrance. Brahma, slipping in unnoticed until she raises her eyes, magnetic force. Formidable duo, destined to part. Sharonda, driven by power, Brahma, emanating a cosmic force. Always about the green, the greater good. Having these two characters meet as they do, as they have in this poem, did, did you think about how that would happen? Because they would eventually meet, wouldn't they? Um, did you have different scenarios as to, to what they would say or what they would do when they did meet? Yeah, very much. And this idea of these two aspects of the feminine divine of incredibly strong, brilliant, beautiful characters who happen to be women who have a very different vibe. I'm fascinated in people's ability to project their energies. 
So as a creative writing instructor in the classroom, I observe extroverts and introverts. Mm. And Brahma is an introvert. And Sharonda is an extrovert. And the auras they have, I mean, I think we might have talked about this, that Sharonda's motto, which is powerful and you need it when you're fighting the great evil power mm-hmm. in the universe, is by any means necessary. Yeah. Get her done. Fight, win, forward. Brahma's motto is, let all evil die and the good endure. She wants to make things. She wants to help people. And, you know, these are the two sides of maybe all human beings. And what will adversity bring out in us? So definitely thinking about how these characters will react to and with each other. That's the novelistic part. Mm-hmm. The poet in me just goes, as you heard it, hopefully, I'm hoping, in the lines with image and sound and rhythm. The blank verse allows me to layer in a lot of things about how the narrator is experiencing these two very different women. Yeah, that's what I, I hate and love about poetry, is that there is so so much in so few words. Um, that one unfortunately has to go back and reread sometimes to get it, um, but at the same time, one or two words themselves just you know it, it, it hits you as to what the poet meant or what this all means. Mm-hmm. Life itself sometimes. The tougher, you know? the tougher the moment, the more silent. Mm. That's Brahma. Yeah, and it's certainly inspired by the people I've seen in the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, in. Uh, our previous chat a couple weeks ago, um, you mentioned something about the importance of silence. And um, I was thinking about that. I saw it in my notes. I haven't listened to the audio that we did, but um, in writing itself, building silence, um, that's important, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It really is, especially when you're creating such a massive project giving the characters room to breathe, the reader some space, giving yourself the creator space. Uh, Silence is the backdrop against which the poetry can take place. You'll find that a lot in the poetry. Little technical things like geek moment again, you know, the use of the M dash Mm. for a more sustained pause so that when you're reading, when you see that, you know, take a deep breath and then proceed. Even though I find the spaces at the bottom of the pages useful, a guide that, that okay, I need to take um, X amount of time before I go into the next page. Yeah, beautiful. And um, Exactly. The, and there's little um, drawings that I've done. Yeah. There's um, artwork and images. This sort of leavens the narrative. Yeah, the, the um, punctuation that you use sometimes to, mm-hmm. to even just create a space. Mm-hmm. Or a line. Mm-hmm. Um, we we talked in our previous chat about um, some of the the uh, large topics that the book looks at. Um, a lot of this evil that um, we hope dies, and and the good that'll hopefully take over. Um, do you wonder if you um, didn't write how you could talk about these things that you're obviously thinking about? I, I've, I asked a poet this recently that I, that I talked to in, in terms of um, if, if they didn't have the ability to write, if they, if they, they were in another line of work even. Um, I wonder if they, they think about some of these, these, these big issues that we're all, say, contending with nowadays. 
I think for me, the first thing that comes to mind is I think I would die in some sort of way, probably not physically, hopefully, but emotionally. I think it's taken me a long time. I trained as a lawyer. I wanted to fulfill my immigrant settler parents' hopes for me to do well, be successful. I'm now a creative writing instructor and a writer. Writing is how I function in the world, how I make sense of the world, how I process. I had a busy, rich, rewarding day yesterday reading from the book, doing events, listening to other poets. And this morning when I woke up, I had such a deep desire to journal, to process through words what I had experienced and reflected. So I created time to do that. It's never enough somehow. But I don't think I could be here today in this interview and able to speak with you if I hadn't allowed myself that writing processing time. Sometimes it's walking and talking into my phone mm. and then always behind in the transcriptions. But almost always I have to think and be in this world with a pen in hand. That's just me. And when I don't, I can almost get physically ill. Uh, things get blocked up mm. and stuck inside of me um, if I'm not writing. I find as much as I complain about doing this podcast, because <laughs> it is a lot of work, um, uh, getting to talk to the authors about their work after having read a lot of it, um, sometimes not, not a lot because you don't have time to finish a book, say, but when, when you get time to digest a, a book, um, the chance to talk to the author about it, or anybody really, um, it makes the, the experience of having read the book all the more richer. And so, unfortunately, during the year, that during the time, the, the several months that I do the podcast, I um, can't read for pleasure, I find. Even magazines and, and things like that are, are, are a chore. Because I, I guess I'm reading, thinking of questions that I would ask or that I would bring up in a discussion with somebody else. It's so fascinating to me. You have my 1,000% attention because... Of course. The more I think about the brain and read about the brain in terms of learning how the creative process works, and again, everyone's different. Those of us who have what I call porous brains, and I have a very porous brain, I absorb everything. So I have to say, Joe Bean, in your studio, there's a <laughs> lot to absorb from busts, buttons, and books. And, you know, everyone finds their way to processing it could be walking, it could be swimming. I like doing those things a lot. It could uh -huh. be yoga. But you have to find a way to let the brain rest, go fallow, absorb, let the subconscious absorb. So you've said something really important, at least for me as a writer, which is when I am in the midst of world building and creating poetry, I don't typically read a lot of things that are outside of that mm, process. Yeah. So I'm always reading a lot of science about climate change, sure. social justice, etc., which typically tend to be not directly poetic. I'm I am going and listening to poets to to be part of that community and you learn so much. Yeah. Like last night I went to an amazing reading at People's Co-op bookstore. Uh -huh. I did my own reading at Joy Kawaga House. So um being part of that community now that we can and be doing it online during the pandemic feeds that. But the process of creation, which you are doing, and I'm very grateful for this podcast, want to honor all the work, um, you need to then give your brain and psyche time to reflect, process, relax, give space. 
Yeah, and this is what I, I so appreciate you coming in today to do this is because we did have a chat a few weeks ago, and um, I looked over my notes. I didn't have time to listen to the audio, which I, I, I wish I did, um, because I probably have more questions probably um but it, it's good to think back to this book which i finished several weeks ago now um and think about the things that i'm still remembering from it and 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 our chat obviously and, and you brought a stack of books here your your, your uh, um your previous books and and um, you mentioned as, as you, you took them out of your bag that we've talked about a lot of them i think most of them right yeah so we have Children of India, my first book, published, can you believe it, this November, 10 years ago in 2013. I, I, can't, yeah. I can't put my mind around And that, that was an epic conversation <laughs> we did. It was so illuminating and helpful to me. Your thoughtful, poignant, nuanced questions helped me understand what I had written. And that's one thing I wanted to say just to kind of tee off what we were just talking about. If I don't give myself space to reflect, process through writing, about writing, I often don't know how to talk about my work because in the act of creating, I'm just taking dictation from some outer source or I'm crafting. And it's I'm, a solitary process, isn't it? Absolutely. And also I'm crafting to revise, right? So it's the two things. They're quite different for me. And um, I'm lifting this stack of books because I'm just thinking of our conversation. So uh, Children of Air India and then... As I was writing it, I was starting 10 years ago, the beginning parts of this epic that's now coming out in books. So I was publishing little bits in chapbooks, and I have here this beautiful chapbook from um, the Quartermain's Nomados Press, which is now um, folded. So uh -huh. if you have a copy, hang on. And then side stories on the whole Brahma epic that I'm delighted to publish in um, a BC magazine called Pulp Literature. And then... The Revolving City with Wade Compton and I, we were in here in person, this anthology of 51 poems and the stories behind them by a range of Vancouver and BC poets. Yeah, but, but before we get yeah. to the next book, I, I, you and Wade came in here. Yeah. And um, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say that that was the first time that I'd, I'd um, read Wade. And, you know, not know, well, I obviously knew of his great reputation in, in science fiction especially and um, uh getting to, to meet him as when, when you when you brought him here it was just great fun for me i must say and i i've uh, not only become a fan but a great admirer of his work and, and who he is as a person i mean he's done marvelous work in the community in terms of history and preservation that i i think he's one of those people that we don't talk enough about <laughs> yeah he is all those things yeah absolutely and i'm so glad that sfu and our local anvil press collectively published this anthology it's still taught in schools it was published in i believe 2016 it's got a great range of poets yeah, yeah. and you can dip in and out right like if you're one of those folks who's going i'm not sure about poetry you There's get the something poem. there for you yeah. exactly you get the poem and then you have a little story from the poet about why they wrote it how they wrote it and so on i forgot that it was 51 mm -hmm. it's a good it's a good number too yeah and it's slender well produced stick yeah. it in your backpack and then, of course, the, before that, though, you had listening to the bees after. Yeah, this came after Mark mm -hmm. Winston. Mm -hmm. um, I, I must say, I think about that book when I see bees in the in the, you know, because you, sometimes you see wasps and you, you think, well, those aren't bees, but <laughs> wasps are not great um, 
they are pollinators. Mark always reminds me that, you know, all living things have their purpose, right? Yeah. And so wasps do pollinate, but I don't like them. They're carnivores. They eat off refuse. They eat meat. And they're nasty. And if you get stung by them, like you, I have been, it's horrible. And if you have an allergy, especially, it can be quite um, dangerous. Serious, yeah. Um, did, did you? Because um, because the, the, there's a lot of science in that book as well. Not just from him, but you're pondering science as you you do in, in writing, um, in in pieces and listening to the bees. That I I mean I see the influence in the, the next two books after that. Um, was that something that that you enjoyed? So much in ways that surprised me. And I think, if I can speak for Mark, uh-huh. surprised him. I mean, I rediscovered my whole link to bees on a very personal level. I have this personal family legend about me and the bees, and there's a strand of poems in Listening to Bees about that. But the bulk of the poems are my poetic response to Mark's 40-year publication history, 40-plus publication history of these very dense scientific journals about honeybees, of which he's a world expert. And then the third strand was about the ecology and the climate catastrophe as it involves bees. And so he and I collaborated. He did essays and I did poetry. And I'm so um, happy that you see that my labor and work, being a student of his work, has found its way through my big epic, my multi-book epic, definitely. So not only do I enjoy it, I am really drawn to scientific documents and reportage, as I think our friend Dan O'Brien is, um, in terms of inspiring me to do things with language. Yeah, and, and the, the, the great thing about listening to the bees is, is the compliment that his sort of scientific background um, and your creative output, your artistry, they, they work together so well. It's, it, it's like, uh, I don't know why other duos don't do this. You know what I mean? I, I find that, that, that they can work together and, and sometimes very effectively. Well, that is wonderful because I did want to say that the wonderful Canadian composer who's here in BC, Owen Underhill, the director, artistic director of Turning Point Ensemble, mm-hmm. which is an amazing group of musicians, he is setting some of my B poems to music. Mm. And we just met recently and we're talking about some of the poems, both in my epic and in this book, that he's he's setting now, he's composing mm. music for, which is incredible. And, and Turning Point has performed. My first book was made into an opera. Mm-hmm in 2015 with Turning Point and and, um, Irish collaborators. So something about my work seems to draw um, musicians and composers, which really excites me. I love that kind of collaboration. And then to think that you were drawn by things, you know, to create your own work, and then now it's it's having a life of its own. Mm. I mean, that must be personally very rewarding. So much so. Yeah. Um, do, do people ask you why you don't practice as a lawyer? Yeah, sometimes. I think less so as yeah. more years go by. Because you're now known as a, as a poet and a writer, and, and I, I would think that. But it, I, I assume that it does still come up. Yeah, especially among family, you know. <laughs> when are you going to get a real job? Aw, my wonderful family. No, they've been very supportive. Um, uh, 
it does come up. I, I'm really proud about being a lawyer. I went to UBC Law. I graduated. Uh-huh. I was called to the bar. I articled with BC's Macquarie Hunter. I'm very proud of all that. It's given me a lot of tools. It certainly helped shape the language and lexicon. Wade was one of my mentors for that first book, Children of Air India. But you can see it really influencing even my saga yeah. in the first book, in particular with the evil investigator and the legal language when the good characters are prosecuted by the bad. And in this current book, um, it's helped me weed through a lot of historical documentation on um, different resistance movements, like in the 1848 Europe, um, what happened. So there's a lot of history. I was saying to folks, when I'm thinking about this saga, um, The Heart of This Journey Bears All Patterns, book one, in an essence, can be summed up in one word, language. I play, investigate, examine, break apart, do different things with the sonnet, with ballads and chants. Book one, the essence of it is language. Book two that we're talking about now, Brahma's Quest, the essence of it is history. Mm. Futuristic, dystopian fantasy, made-up history, and the past, as in reportage and historical documents that I weave, fragment, subvert, and use for my own purpose in this story. So you have this set of cantos, which is um, homage to Dante, uh-huh. to Milton, in blank verse and cantos, and you have the Ahmedabad cantos, and you have the Paris cantos, and they do a time travel to very particular historical moments, right? Yeah. Um, the, the other thing um, I wanted to ask you in the previous conversation that we had a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, um, the, the meaning of New Year's for you, I mean, it, it, it plays a part in, in these two books. Um we were just talking before we started our conversation today that um, a lot of people view this time of year, the the, the, the day after Labor Day, as, as New Year's. I mean, you probably think that as a, as a, a teacher yourself. Um, but but the first of the of January um, that has special meaning for you. It does, particularly the threshold pivot hinge of December thirty first leading into January. Mm. So I would say New Year's Eve as I've written about in the back section note to readers in each of these books, I try and always have the first complete revised manuscript that will then go through many other revisions, but I try and have the first revised manuscript of the books in the series completed, and I'm writing it often by candlelight, and if there's a moon, so much the better, on New Year's Eve. My wonderful husband who's so supportive. That's kind of what we do for New Year's Eve. And we go through and we read the finished thing from beginning to end or big sections because they're so long. Mm. And we talk about the characters and the work. And yeah, New Year's Eve is a big time portal for me. So you're not at uh, a, a cocktail party with a bunch of people? <laughs> well, I wouldn't rule that out. Right. Because maybe this would be the after party. Right. Yeah. Um, so particularly in the pandemic, definitely not at a cocktail party. But uh-huh. now that maybe, knock on wood, fingers crossed, God willing, that we'll, we'll get through whatever's going to come with this respiratory season, maybe I could do the cocktail party. Maybe I'll see you at a party. And then <laughs> I'd come back and I'd definitely conform to my rituals. New Year's Eve is a time portal. And I think if you look at any book and if you Google novels, New Year's Eve, yeah. 
I know that you're going to find a whole bunch of things. Yeah. Right? Things happen on New Year's Eve. Think of all the movies, yeah. right? Gatsby was, was no, they were partying all the time. Like they the were, yeah. yeah not really. <laughs> I just think it's New Year. I think that's what New Year's Eve black tie, um, a bunch of fireworks and and champagne flowing. I guess. Yeah, why not? Yeah. I mean, that's pretty cool. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about uh, your practice as a writer, um, it's it, it's the world of publishing. Because for for poets, it, it can be quite tough. Um, he said it. He as, said as, it, my you friend. Know, more than say novelists or or nonfiction mem- memoirists or nonfiction writers of, of all sorts. Um, does that dissuade you from the actual creation? Sometimes. Never, and that was a huge learning curve. If I learned anything from poets, like last night, I had the privilege at People's Co-op, as I was saying, to hear George Bowring. Rini Roden and Lionel Kearns. Mm. And if I've learned anything from them, from Wade, from Fiona Tinwe Lam, we were at an earlier event in the afternoon, uh, it's to keep going and to create. What makes me a poet is writing the poems, accepting image, sound, not even really meaning to tell you the truth, sound, fragments, rhythm. That's the poetry. Everything else comes after. Um, I am so grateful that there are independent literary publishers in BC like Nightwood to hold space for me to publish my work, that there are independent literary bookshops like Massey Books, Iron Dog Books, Monroe's mm-hmm. Books, Russell Books. I'm so grateful for you that we can actually talk about books. Like, So it truly takes a community, a village, a connected sense of sustainers to do poetry and to make epics you're, you're absolutely right about and well not me but but the, the 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 number of poets in this part of the world they're marvelous to talk to and i've talked to a lot of you, you poets over the years the, the the booksellers especially do a wonderful job at you you go to any of these shops that you named and um, you're looking for something to read and you talk to the person behind the counter you'll find what you need so th- much they'll find what you need for so you you know much. it's just it's, we're, we're so lucky in this part of the world in vancouver yeah. um to have if you're a reader and you want to read so much to read and, and you know writers amongst you book warehouse black bond books think of how long they have sustained mm-hmm. themselves in the market i love them so much yeah i can't help but but thank you for for doing this because i i, I as i as i clumsily try to to <laughs> um, express what I'm thinking. Um, these conversations over the last, I can't believe it's been nearly 10 years now, um, it, it seems to me just one big conversation about life itself for me. So beautiful. Did, did you? Um, I'm feeling that vibe right now, well, sitting I, in this studio. I'm I, very grateful. I appreciate you coming I think in. I have to lift one of these fake cigarettes <laughs> and put it in my hand like I'm a French famous author the, the prop cigarette on my desk here yeah. um this has been great fun and, and i can't wait to, for the next chat um, me too thanks thanks for for doing this and and uh I, again i appreciate it my pleasure the book is called brahma's quest it's published by nightwood editions the website for more is at t-h-o-t-j-b-a-p.com thoughtjbap.com uh the the author the poet renee sacklicar joined me in person here in vancouver i'm joseph planta